All right, welcome back to another great episode of Dan on Top. I'm your host, Dan Lukowitz, and today we have with us Brian Adams, president at Excelsior Capital. Brian, how you doing? Hey, Dan, how are you? Doing great. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us today. How's everything going? It's going well. Uh, thank you for having me on. Yeah, absolute pleasure. So look, we've got 18 minutes. You're a guy that's full of value. I want to jam-pack it into this episode for our viewers. So let's just dive right in. Tell our viewers, who is Brian Adams? Yeah, <laughs> good question. I, I wonder that myself sometimes. But uh, I'm a New Yorker who married a Nashville girl. I'm a recovering attorney, so I practiced law for a couple of years down here in Nashville. My wife's family has a single family office that had invested in commercial real estate, private equity for the last 25, 30 years. So I kind of fell into the business through um, some family investments and connections. And it's been 11 years now since I started the company. And today we run over two and a half million square feet and probably around $400 million portfolio. So, uh, continue to try to find opportunity and uh, look for interesting places to put money to work. That's great. Well, you know, I've gotten the opportunity to work with you guys a little bit, show you guys some deals, but tell our viewers exactly what you do, what you focus on, what your business looks like. Yeah, absolutely. So, we've really kept it try to keep it very simple. We do three things. We give people the opportunity to invest directly into um, commercial real estate opportunities. We provide uh, ideally, a double-digit cash-on-cash yield that we distribute monthly. And then we give people all the benefits that come from direct real estate ownership from a tax perspective. So those are the three things that we do. Um, we focus in the commercial real estate space, which is a big spectrum. But for us, that can mean anything from suburban office to flex industrial to medical. We don't do any residential. And we focus on secondary markets in the southeast and the Midwest, which basically means non-gateway markets, um, so think of places like Kansas City, mm -hmm. suburban Detroit, Richmond, Virginia, um, those type of markets. Okay, great. So you mentioned uh, suburban office. Talk to us a little bit. That's uh, an area that's seen a lot of shakeup over the last 12 months. What, where's that market standing today, and, and what do you see moving forward for suburban office? Yeah, like most things with COVID, it's operating on a continuum, right? So if you're a landlord in midtown Manhattan or downtown San Francisco for office, it's a challenging time for sure. But what we've seen in our portfolio, um, which again, probably around 2 million square feet total of suburban office, um, occupancy has been strong. We're in the low 90 percentile wow. and rent collection has, has been in the high 80 percent to low 90 percent as well. Uh, we certainly have had a few tenants that have exposure to COVID-related industries like hospitality, leisure, um, mm -hmm. et cetera, travel, which they've struggled. But for the most part, um, we've been able to maintain um, occupancy and rent collection. We've been able to make distributions. The big question mark and, and where we really don't know yet is what will happen with lease renewals, new leasing activity, sure. et cetera. It was obviously pretty muted over the last 12 months. But geographically dependent, we've seen a huge uptick in the last 30 or 60 days. Again, some markets are slower than others. The assets we own in Florida um, or the Southeast are certainly moving a lot quicker than in the Midwest, especially Ohio and some other markets. But you know, we can get into the future of office and all that. But for us and our portfolio, we've been really pleased with how it's performed during this period. 
That's great. I'm really glad to hear that. Do you see any big changes coming down the way in terms of perhaps you know uh, the size needs for certain tenants, like in terms of needing more square footage per employee, for example? Yeah, and that's a great question. Um, what we saw from 2008 up until COVID was a trend line towards a massive densification, what we call the WeWork effect, where you know some of these co-working locations had as uh, small as 75 square feet per user, wow. whereas a traditional office layout would be more like 325, 350 square feet uh, per employee. Um, I think the pendulum will swing the other way. I think you'll see a return towards more traditional office layouts where people can actually go to work, get work done, stay focused, not have the interruptions and distractions that they had at home. And then also office will be a place where collaboration, creativity, team working, um, executive management functionalities take place. So I think you'll see more of these kind of multi-purpose type areas implemented uh, because the lesson we learned over the last year is people certainly can, can work from home within certain industries, but productivity, creativity, that dynamism that you saw in the workforce has really suffered, especially over the last three to six months. Yeah, I mean, you bring up some good points. I think that there there are benefits to both models, right? And, and I think that that you bring up something that's often overlooked is that collaborative creativity that that really only takes place in that face to face interaction that we have in, in the office space. So, you know, I'm definitely glad to hear that you're seeing um, such high occupancy and, and rent collections, and I hope that that only continues into the future. You know, something else that you mentioned was secondary growth markets. Talk to us a little bit about those, as well as the key demographic metrics that are driving investments. Yeah, sure. So even before COVID, we had an investment thesis that said that the Wall Street narrative, that millennials, which are now the largest working generational cohort in American history, roughly 75 million people total, um, the narrative that they were going to live in Brooklyn, uh, never get married, never have children, just live in in a four-story walk-up and eat avocado toast forever, (laughs) was clearly not true, right? What we saw was the Great Recession, Um, caused a pushback in that typical family formation phase of life, but it was occurring, right? And so um, because of of the economic hardship, it got pushed back three to five years. But increasingly, millennials, which which I I barely uh, qualify, but I do, I am included in that definition, were having uh, children, they were getting married, and they were increasingly making choices about where they want to live, work, and play based on quality of life, cost of living, access to single family homes and access to education for their children. Essentially, like all generations, they rebelled against the, 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 the lifestyle that they had growing up. But when they started having children, they wanted the same experiences <laughs> for their own children. So they're moving back to the suburbs, right? So for a long time, we knew that this was taking place because we saw it anecdotally uh, amongst our friends and family who were employees looking to move back to Big Ten, Big 12, SEC country. But what we saw really play out over the last few years and has only been accelerated by COVID is employers started realizing that they needed to go where the talent was. And so you saw things like Alliance Bernstein relocate to Nashville, and you've seen a huge uptick in corporate relocations occurring in Florida and Texas and elsewhere. We just see that continuing to play out as people want to access human capital. And before the the COVID recession, the biggest challenge for employers was obtaining and retaining that kind of human capital um, talent. 
we don't see that changing now that the economy is rebounding. Yeah, it's amazing. I feel like there's always trends and undercurrents, right? Sometimes they're more visible than others. Right now, those trends have just become so much more apparent and so much quicker. So I, I think that you know you bring up a lot of great points. It's funny that we we believe that you know we want to be different than the previous generation until we realize that there was something right about the way that the previous generation was was conducting themselves. So it's fascinating to see how that interplays into you know your your business uh, you know in the commercial real estate space. So you know I wanted you to talk to us a little bit about syndication platforms. I know that you focus on you know taxable high net worth individuals and family offices. So tell us a little bit about how that works in your business. Yeah. So the reason I started the company was because the, a big challenge for my family and others, as well as high net worth individuals, was you know increasingly the only way that they were able to access commercial real estate opportunities was through a fund of funds vehicle or through a synthetic security like a REIT, mm-hmm. and they didn't have great institutional level quality direct co investment opportunities. So we started the platform to solve that problem. And it, it's been terrific. Um, we've really seen an uptick in engagement. And, you know, essentially what a syndication is, is as opposed to uh, investing into a blind pool vehicle or a fund, just on a deal-by-deal basis, people kind of just come in as a JV partner on the asset level. So one particular building in um, uh, suburban Detroit or Kansas City, we send it out to our distribution list. People can see the underwriting, they can see the opportunity. If they like the deal, they can come in as a partner in just that one specific opportunity. There's no cross-collateralization on debt or equity with any other deals. Okay, great. And you know, talk to us a little bit about some of the tax advantages of direct real estate investment. Yeah, there's a there's a saying that you hear from a lot of stock market guys, which is, you know, don't fight the Fed. And I think that's true, but an even better term, I think, is don't fight the IRS. And when you look at the IRS tax code, it's just a series of incentives and disincentives to encourage or discourage certain investing behavior for U.S. residents. And when you look at the tax code, it is clearly telling you that you should own your own home and that you should invest in commercial real estate. Totally. Um, So if, if you look at what we can accomplish in terms of um, accelerated depreciation through cost segregation analysis, we can, I, my controller will kill me, but, but we can oftentimes get you a loss on your K-1 for one or two or three years while still delivering a double-digit cash and cash yield, which obviously for a taxable investor, to have that income but able to offset gains elsewhere in your investment portfolio with this, with this um, you know, uh, allocation towards commercial real estate is just an incredibly powerful tool. Yeah, that's huge. And you said it so well. The IRS tax code, I look at it as like it's a guidebook, right? It's not just a set of rules. It's showing you how to conduct yourself in business so that you can make the most out of your investments. And, and, and there are situations, like you mentioned, where the tax code is there for us to utilize it in a way that benefits us. It's not breaking any rules. It's not doing anything wrong. It's just merely you know, utilizing that information to make educated decisions that will be in our best interest. So I love that. And I think that that's something that's often overlooked. You know, we, we uh, a lot of people are in the finance space. My, my fiance is a financial advisor and we talk about this all the time. You know, she likes investing in REITs because, you know, they're, they're you know, like a synthetic blend of all these different uh, holdings and real estate. And I say, you know, it's great. And, and I, I personally have, you know, have uh, holdings in the equities market, but there's really no substitute for 
actual real estate ownership, you know, as you said. So I love hearing that because it only supports what I, you know, wholeheartedly believe in. So, you know, I, I, on, a, on a different note, Brian, I know that you have a course that you put out on LinkedIn, a 30-minute training course about raising capital. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So over the last 11 years, I've raised, and, and this is not this is not to kind of trump my own, my own horn, but this is just the facts, probably around $100 million of equity. And that's relative in this world, right? Especially in commercial real estate, you see some big numbers out there. Sure. Um, but the number one question I get far and away from aspiring entrepreneurs or people who want to get into space is how can I raise capital? Um, and how do I start day one, right? If I don't have a track record, yeah. if I don't even have an office, uh, you know, it's just me, a solopreneur, maybe a partner, kind of where do we begin? And so I put together a 30 minute course, which you can access to our website, excelsorgp.com, or you can look on LinkedIn, um, and it's free, obviously. And and what I found is most people, <laughs> it's a very ego-driven pitch where it's all I statements. I went to this school. I had this job. I was too smart to work at that job, so I started my own company. And you should invest with me because I'm really smart and this deal is terrific. What I found is you can make that work and you can kind of push through that and jam it down people's throats. But what is much more effective and, and realistic and will be much more efficient with your time and energy is if you reverse engineer that process, where if you go to a hundred of your closest friends and family and ask them what they want, and these are people that you know logically might actually give you their resources, um, and then you just provide them with that product or offering that solves their problems, and you do the pitch by starting out with what's in it for me as opposed to talking about yourself the whole time, you will find much more success in my opinion. Yeah, totally. You know, and you said it so well again, Brian. I, you know, I've sat in this chair close to 75 times with different incredible guests like yourself. And and the one of the main motifs that keeps echoing over and over again is solving problems, right? And there's two ways to pitch it. Like you said, pitch it in terms of why someone should invest in me or why I should work for you or Ask the questions, control the conversation, get to know what their pain points are, and then step in and solve that problem, and you'll just be so much more successful. So, you know, I agree with you, Brian, and, and it's what I love is that, you know, having so many successful people as guests on the show, when you see those themes that overlap over and over again, it's because they work. So I really appreciate you sharing that with us. So we've got about two and a half minutes left. You've already jam-packed a lot of value here. So I'd like to kind of continue on that that path. You mentioned about your course, right? That's really great. And you're, you're helping people who are getting into the industry. As someone who started you know, his own company, who's raised $100 million, who's in charge of so many different aspects of, of commercial real estate, can you give us maybe three pieces of advice to other investors out there? Yeah, um, <laughs> I, could, I, could, I could try. Um, I think one would be, you know, exactly kind of what I talked about in terms of raising capital. Um, the biggest piece of advice I would give you is if you want to be in this business, you need to be the chief sales officer. You cannot outsource the sales and marketing to anybody else. There are certainly vendors out there that will pitch that to you. I don't think it works. Um, you need to be comfortable with the fact that this is a capital intensive business and you need to take full ownership over that, that role itself. 
Another piece of advice that I would give is don't fall into the trap of just being a quote unquote deal guy. Um, I see a lot of folks and I made this mistake as well. You start finding some success, you learn how to pitch the right way. There's a huge amount of appetite in the marketplace and you don't focus the time, energy or resources on building out the infrastructure to be a small business owner, which supports your real estate investments. It can't just be about the real estate deals themselves because ultimately you will fail. There's all kinds of other things involved, sure. be it HR, tax, audit, et cetera. So that'd be another one. And then with technology now, you can bring the Wall Street experience to Main Street. So you can leverage a lot of these other great tools that are pretty cost efficient especially compared with five, 10 years ago when I got into the business to, from a marketing reporting uh, perspective, asset management to make your life much easier um, and still give people that sense that they're with, you know, a top tier private equity group. Awesome. Love it. Appreciate that very much. So just a little bit more time left. Let's turn the tables a little bit. Any questions for me? What's been the biggest thing that you've learned that doing 75 of these interviews, you see that you have motifs what are the top three things that you just keep hearing over and over again? Yeah, so one of them is is activity, right? Don't overthink it. You have to be active, right? You're going to miss some shots, but you're going to make a lot more the more that you take. So that's definitely number one that I've heard. Um, number two is providing value and not focusing on profit. Focus on providing value to people and everything else will follow. And then the other one that kind of goes along with number two is solve problems. Ask questions find out people's pain points, and then solve those problems, and everything else will just fall into place. I agree. <laughs> that sounds awesome. right. <laughs> well, hey, Brian, thank you so much for joining us. This was a lot of fun. Really appreciate having you on the show. I look forward to doing a lot of deals together. And if anybody wants any more information, feel free to reach out to Brian. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Dan. This was fun. Yep. See you soon.